another episode of Tunes Me, episode 21. I'm Mark. And I'm Ray. And today, we are joined by Ralph Solonitz. He actually was there on May 4th, 1970, during what many say was a turning point in history. And I know, Ray, as someone who studies pop culture, you were familiar with this event that occurred, but from your perspective, what is your view of what happened that day? Yeah, you're talking about the you know, the Kent State shootings at uh, Kent yeah. State University. I mean, I haven't you know studied it deeply. I remember years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, reading parts of some narratives about it. I think from a popular culture perspective, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one, in general, it was, as you said, sort of a, a historical moment. It, it catalyzed a lot of elements of the counterculture movement and the Vietnam War protest movement and in some ways made it come home to people. It, it humanized, I think, well, to some people. Some people didn't. I know people who today, you know, to, through to today, 50 years later, you know, don't want to go step foot on Kent State University because they're these sort of paramilitary type people that, you know, you know, well, they were totally justified in taking action against these students and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's, I have problems with that perspective. I'll, I'll tell you that. I can understand it to a point. I have real problems with it, regardless of whatever one thinks. And I'm not necessarily arguing what one thinks of the protests or anything like that. I think that the um, uh, the shooting on the the students and the protesters was problematic, and it was deeply problematic because um, I mean, even if somebody takes the opinion, well, the protesters were asking for it, which is I I have a problem with that argument too. But even if they take that opinion, two of the four students killed weren't even protesters. One was simply a student who was attending Kent State University who was in between classes. And another was actually a member of the ROTC who was, you know, just happened to be in the vicinity. So, you know, um, the other two were main protesters. But from a popular culture perspective, I think that from a, from a cultural perspective, a societal perspective, this humanized in some ways. It was like, what is, you know, what is this nation doing shooting on essentially defenseless or, you know, not not nonviolent protests, or even if they were throwing rocks or whatever, you know, people who weren't carrying guns. And of course, the whiteness plays a role here too. You know, through to today, we have things like Black Lives Matter, which address the fact that many African-American folks feel like, well, you know, this still happens to us. And, and uh, one of the things that gets forgotten is that uh, right in the same time period of the Kent State shootings was uh, another shooting at Jackson State University very similar types of circumstances. And that one sort of gets forgotten or not talked about. And um, Jackson State is a historically black college. And so there's a certain whiteness to this whole thing to begin with, but uh, to a lot of white people then, which is sort of mainstream media audience, right? Historically, media audiences have been, have been focused on white audiences. This brought it home. It was like, well, that could have been my son or daughter or relative or sister or brother, you know, who was there who got killed. And especially given that a couple of the people were just people who just happened to be, you know, in the vicinity. 
Uh, the other thing is that it, it inspired a lot of things. I mean, you can just go and take a look at lists of music. We, we, you know, we focus on music, and we look at lists of music, the, the list of songs and musical pieces and music inspired music that's been inspired by Kent State is is pretty significant. Um, the most famous, of course, is uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, Ohio, but. Uh, you can look at Bruce Springsteen, Dave Brubeck, the Isley Brothers. Genesis even recreates it from the guards' perspectives. There's a lot of folks, and maybe this was because a lot of folks in the in the music industry were connected to the counterculture movement, or their audiences were, and so they felt a connection there. So yeah, from a from popular culture perspective, it's pretty significant, and I think that um, it's it's always uh, sort of another role that it plays is whenever we talk about protests and we talk about what happens at protests and what doesn't happen at protests, this was the, the the sort of archetype of the government taking violence against protests that that hits home to people. Yeah, and I met Ralph when I worked at ClevelandHits.com. You remember that mm-hmm. many years ago, yep. being one of the you know first internet you know jocks of the day, and he pretty much called me on you know day two or day three and we hit it off and it was, was all about music. And I found it interesting that he said in this interview that out of all the photos that were taken that day, his, to his knowledge are the only ones that are in color of the events. So he said that he went back and he decided, you know, back, I guess, 20 years after the event to go and look at his rolls of film and discovered them. And, and now they're actually in the Kent state archive for the day. So he was there and he kind of recounted his story. And then we went down some paths talking about music and how that got him through that time and, and thought about it. So it definitely was very sentimental. I know it was the 50th. He particularly said he couldn't set foot for some reason this time when it came up and obviously because we're in the middle of this pandemic Mm -hmm. that I would imagine had caused some social distancing, but you're right, Ray. I mean, there's a lot of music here. I mean, I'm looking at a list right here in front of me and you mentioned some of the big ones. The one that I guess got me was the Marvin Gaye song. What's going on. Mm -hmm. And that, that was pretty significant. And I also thought it was interesting that the beach boys had a song too, on one of their albums as well that was uh, called Student Demonstration Time. Yeah. I guess it was on the Surf's Up album. Right. So if you even think about it, I mean, even the Beach Boys were yeah. writing about it who generally have some very merry songs. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, the Beach Boys are interesting. Uh, Brian Wilson had, I mean, with his experimental drug use and everything, I mean, he had connections to the counterculture movement. But the Beach Boys are remembered, and, and they had they had music that moved in that direction. But the Beach Boys, yeah, they're remembered for this sort of, you know, uh, happy stuff, right? You know, Surf City, USA, and, uh, you know, um, even Good Vibrations. It has elements of a sort of counterculture-ish move to it. It's still it's Good Vibrations, right? It's, you know, I remember Sunfish commercials for it, using it in the 1980s, and right, as you said, it, they're sort of known for this this sort of this happy-go-lucky kind of feel, but yeah, they they got a song because, and I think that 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 you bring that up, I think that's a good example to show how 
far this went in terms of how it reached people, that people that artists who maybe otherwise might not have been associated with writing something like this or writing about this, doing what might even be called a protest song, they were doing that because it it mattered to them. Yeah, and I even, I mentioned it to Ralph during the interview, but Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders was there that day. Reaccounts that in her autobiography, which I thought was interesting. And who even knows what other things were inspired from that being there. I think I mentioned this on another podcast with Thomas Mulready, the numbers band, which came out of that era as well, was inspired, which led to the punk rock movement. So there is a lot of significant musical uh, perseverance that came out of this particular event. And Ralph even said, he, to him, he thought this was the day the music died. It's a legitimate uh, statement there. I mean, to a lot of people, I think that probably rings true. Don McLean wasn't referring to this as the day the music died. Uh, his song really sort of ends with a year earlier, or a number of months earlier, in 1969. I don't know that there's any interpretation that says that any that he, was at, he actually references uh, Kent State, maybe indirectly but i mean because the song did come out you know a year later a year and a half later but but yet i mean you know for as much as for um mclean buddy holly dolly dying was the day the music died for a lot of folks and that's interesting too that you that they use that phrase because mclean using it he really didn't like what was happening to music in the 60s and he liked the music of the late 50s and you know the references buddy holly and Elvis and Chuck Berry and you name it. And he didn't like what was happening to music in the 60s. Whereas for folks who who really identified with what was happening to music in the 60s, this makes sense as, as their sort of the day the music died here, you know, 11 years later, and this is their day that the world changed. And you know, we think about how music progressed in the 70s, said the development of punk, right, which really sort of builds after this. The development of disco, which, you know, folks don't think about disco as political, but in a way it had a political element to it. And there are folks who've written about exactly that. Funk, right, that this was expression of African-American music and culture. And so, and, and then even just it's a sort of hard rock that develops in the 70s, and even just sort of the mainstream music of the 70s, there's some changes that happen. And so there's a, this does become a marking point between errors of sorts. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot here to digest. So without further ado, let's just turn it over to Ralph. He's going to really go through his account of what he saw that day and how it impacted him and how music played into that. So turn it over to Ralph and we'll come back after the interview. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Tunes Mate. I am honored today to be joined by illustrator, artist, Ralph Solonitz. Hi, Ralph. Hey, Mark. Good to talk to you. Yeah, it's good to talk with you, too. Now, interesting thing, we just commemorated May 4th, 1970, a couple days ago, and you were at that tragic event at Kent State University 50 years ago. And I started thinking about the fact that really had to impact your life 
and it also led to a lot of music and that's what our site is about but i'd love to hear about your story what you saw there what it means to you how it was impacted your life there's sure, a lot there sure. well yeah um graduated from cleveland heights high school in 1965 and, and then i went to community college uh mm-hmm. right downtown cleveland and yeah, that was on huron road it was actually a, a an office building that was uh abandoned at the time or vacant and they took over like the first two floors and that's exactly where the uh, the baseball stadium is now progressive field is it, is it still called progressive field it is okay so uh anyway yeah and uh, i took some pre-engineering courses but then i like uh, i like the nude uh models there so i started doing life drawing just went into art you know because i always loved to draw and decided that i was going to uh be a graphic designer and, and, and do that. I transferred to Kent State in about 68, and again, a graphic design major, took art classes, and mm-hmm. well, there was just a bunch of really great music venues downtown, and I mean, I always loved music, but the, the JB's and the Cove and Venice, uh, there was a whole strip right down on, uh, on North Water Street. We have, you know, bands that played there, like the Glass Harp, and I think the Numbers Band played there. I'm not sure if they played before 1970 but i mean that's really where the music came from there were musicians that started hmm. there so lived off campus on south water street i could mm-hmm. walk downtown I used to do that like friday nights saturday nights it was great just great well i was taking a photojournalism class uh, at taylor hall and uh, my assignment was to go out and do night shots so um, a buddy of mine and i we went out we did uh, night shots we did pan action stop action Focus in the front, focus in the back, like. But anyway, so we, mm-hmm. we had all these assignments to do, and for the night photo shots, so uh, Rick Carlton and I, we decided we were going to go down to Kent and uh, do the night shots. So it was like May first, Friday night. So we climbed up on the rooftop right across from JB's, and all of a sudden, this motorcycles uh, group or a gang start doing wheelies, and then another guy in a hot ride was uh, doing zero to sixty and like. 11 seconds up and down the street and uh we're taking pictures of all this stuff here and, uh, and i guess there was uh, one police captain that he, he was a real ball buster so uh, he showed up and he tried to chase this uh, hot rod but I, I think this guy had one of those amx supercars at the time it was like a 427 cubic inch and this guy i mean there was no way that this cop was going to chase him he kept on so he's flying up north water street and then the crowd started to uh cheer this guy started throwing bottles at the cop, <laughs> bouncing off of his hood. And um, that's really what brought a lot of people out on the street at, at that time. And so me and my buddy Rick, we're up on this rooftop. And, you know, I've got a uh, Minolta rangefinder uh, camera, uh, Imatic 11. And he's shooting with a Asahi Pentex. This kid is a, a Vietnam veteran. He's got this camera where he could do almost anything with it. So he was pushing the film and he got all these shots and I got a bunch of shots. And. Well, anyway, I didn't tell you that the uh, mayor of Kent decided it was a good idea to empty the bars. There, there weren't enough people on the street before that, but, you know, when he said, that's it, closing down the bars, everybody go back to your dorms, wherever you live, get the hell out of here. All of a sudden, there's like 2,000 people in the street. Wow. I mean, before there was only a few hundred. Now there's like 2,000 kids, most of them drunk, and, uh, and they got to go back to their dorms. So in the meantime, that was a Friday night. Everybody left. On the way back, they started smashing windows down Main Street. Uh, so that was it. That was pretty much uh, the Friday night. Me and my buddy, we got all these uh, negatives in our camera. And uh, anyway, they used his in the Akabiki Journal and uh, 
the Kent paper. We had called up the plane dealer, and the plane dealer, I said, Dave, there's a riot here in Kent. We got some photos from the rooftop. I said, well, you know what? Put them on a Greyhound bus. I said, oh, fuck you. And it was a, we called up the Akron Big Journal, and they said, yeah, come on down in the morning. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. So they called up, and they said, right away, uh, 5 in the morning, they called, come on down, we'll buy your breakfast. I want to see those prints. Anyway, so they used Rich photos, and that was the Friday night. Saturday, nothing really going on Saturday. Uh, it's pretty quiet. I think they had close the campus down, declared lockdown or martial law or whatever the hell. Mm-hmm. The kids weren't allowed anywhere. And so that was like Saturday. So like Saturday night, I think there was a party off campus, and I, I think I went to it like in Tri-Towers, and I could start to see this is not going to be a good situation. Anyway, mm-hmm. we had helicopters flying around. That night, Sunday, Saturday night, that night, somebody sent fire to the ROTC building, which was a, really a, a piece of shit barracks left over from uh, World War II. Uh, they was using it for storage. But anyway, hmm. we had art classes in similar structures. Anyway, so uh, the place burnt down, and uh, Sunday, yeah, somebody called the National Guard, and they came in, and uh, Sunday, everybody uh, showed up to see the smoldering embers, you know, like, it was it was great, it was a great event, you know, and everybody uh, came in from Cleveland or, you know, Northeast Ohio, visit their friends and, and look around, uh, well, National Guard were there. I think they were pretty pissed off to be there in the first place. They had just finished Teamster Strike, and they were mm. a bunch of kids, they were a bunch of kids our age. So, uh, that was Sunday. Next day, uh, Monday, I figured, you know what? I got all these uh, negatives in my camera, and uh, I want to go down to Taylor Hall, and I'm going to process some uh, prints. That's where my photojournalism class was. Mm-hmm. So uh, on my way there, I- I'm hearing all these uh, sirens. You know, I'm hearing uh, ambulances and sirens. And you know, to get closer, I'm on the uh, in the Victory Bell area, area of the Blanket Hill. I see all these students standing around, and uh, I start taking pictures. There's uh, National Guard up the hill on one side. There's a National Guard on the right side of me, far, farther away, oh, they're all lined up, and the kids are screaming. And I can smell, you know, tear gas, and the kids are screaming. They're gonna come. They're gonna come again. They're gonna. They're gonna shoot us again. They're gonna. They're gonna overrun us. And uh, one of the uh, faculty members, he was yelling, to, we, "We gotta go. They're gonna. They're gonna shoot. We gotta go. You kids have. To, you have to leave right now." People start to dis- disperse, and I'm taking photos. I got a full roll of uh, Coca-Cola 36 exposure film in my camera, and I'm going around, and I must have put myself into a uh, photojournalist mode, you know, mm-hmm. photographer mode, because I'm going around, and I'm going uh, to have my aperture set right, my depth of field, uh, what's the subject, and I'm going through here, and I got a uh, scene I think I come to is uh, that Don Drum sculpture. Thing's got a hole in it. I take a picture of that, and I see there's a General Del Corso and Canterbury and a bunch of news people standing around there looking at this hole. I take a picture of the hole. There's a bunch of bullet holes that go through these trees that were like maybe two feet uh, wide, two feet thick. I had one kid. I asked him to point a finger at the entry of, the, of that uh, bullet, and then uh, you could see the the exit, you know, on the other side. So that's that's one bullet. And if you line it up, if you line up that the uh, hole in the sculpture or the holes in the trees that were there, and then I walked down to uh, where Jeffrey Miller was killed. They'd already taken the, the uh, wounded uh, students away, so uh, I'm just shooting puddles of puddles of blood. I mean, there's there's where Jeffrey wow. Miller was killed right there, and I'm taking a picture of that. And it's already starting to coagulate, you know. Uh, half of it is still liquid. The other half is starting to coagulate. There's a pack of Marlboro, uh, empty Marlboro cigarette pack there. That 
it kind of puts it all in in uh, proportion, you know. Like, well, anyway, some girl standing there and um, looking down at this blood. Well, anyway, so I take a few pictures of that, and then I move along into the Prentice parking lot. Uh, Volkswagens there with bumper stickers that say uh, "Get out of Vietnam, peace now." We have holes through this car, windshields smashed, glass on the ground, and a puddle of blood next to that car. I keep moving. I'm taking pictures. I keep moving. There's another uh, MGB English sports car. Got a window shot out. Holes through that puddle of blood, broken glass. That's me taking pictures of that. I'm walking around in in my photojournalism mode, which, you know, I look back at it now, I don't know, maybe it was just a combination of this is a school project and I'm, I'm a photographer or just maybe I was in shock. I mean, you'd have to be really. But anyway, so I'm documenting all, all this stuff here. Come back to this puddle of blood where Jeffrey Miller was, and this girl is still standing there. So it must have been a half hour, 45 minutes later. She's still standing there staring at this puddle of blood. Well, anyway, I got out of town. They said, yeah, everybody else, students, get the hell out of town. That was uh, pretty much our experience as far as mm-hmm. counseling and grief counseling. Grief counseling was get the fuck out of town. That was grief counseling. And I went back to Cleveland the best way I could find. I think I hopped a ride like everybody else did with somebody that was heading back. And it was like a parade of cars. The phones were down. Somebody, I think somebody had cut the phone lines or they maybe it was just overloaded. Mm-hmm. Couldn't call anybody. Made it back to Cleveland. Well, I'm looking back on it now. I have this whole uh, roll of film, color film, and I have it processed. And I put it away from 1970 till 1990. I put these photos away. 1990, I decided I'm going to go back for the 20-year commemoration at Kent. So mm-hmm. my wife and I, we we drive uh, to Kent. I'm in Cleveland Heights, so it's only like a half hour, 45 minute drive. But anyway, drive back to to Kent. And they had like a welcoming at uh, Williamson to the alumni. So, you know, Ralph Solonitz got my name tag. You all graduated in 70, and there really wasn't a, a celebration, graduation service, or whatever you call it, the program at that time because the school shut down. But they uh, they welcomed us, and I pulled out my uh, photo album with the photos in it, and I, people started coming up close to me, like, what, what is that? That's my, my photos from uh, May 4th. They go, oh, my God. I didn't think I was the only person that took photos. I mean, I know there were a lot of people, but I think I might have been one of the few that had color film in the camera. But anyway, um, I donated those photos to the uh, archives, Kent Archives, and uh, the 50th anniversary, I couldn't go back. I, I had been back for the commemorations every year since 1990. I got to know all the wounded students. Mm-hmm and got to know their families and got to be really good friends with them. A couple of them have passed away since then. Wow. But uh, that was the day the music died in Kent. We talk about music. Everything shut down. Everything shut down for a long time. Bands that had been playing there. That was it. That was it. After that, some of these clubs burnt down on the Strip. There was a big fire. So it's still a huge I'll say it's interesting. I was uh, recently reading the autobiography of Chrissy Hine, and she was mm-hmm. there and mm-hmm. that day. And exactly. It's, exactly, it's interesting how that whole event really set off, like you were saying, this this whole movement. Yeah, and who's the other group there? Uh... Well, I know uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young 
had uh, had the song yeah. Ohio. Yeah, they did their song and they came in and but um, yeah, Chrissy Hines. There's another group there. Anyway, it affected a lot of people. How did it affect me? Uh, you know, I'll tell you. I I always loved music. I I loved. I used to listen to WJMO and WABQ on my crystal radio, you know, uh, in 62, 63, because their uh, transmission tower was uh, right for Cleveland Heights, and I could get it. I loved Motown and funk. And then when, uh, you know, the uh, uh, blues, I, I loved blues. And when the British brought the blues in, you know, it was like, I mean, I used to listen to black music. And, and then when the British brought the blues in, like with Cream or uh, Traffic or well, you, you named it. Oh, yeah. Groups. You can name the groups. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I love music. That's my point. And, you know, music is an is a, is a expression. It's an expression of, uh, of the times, politically and uh, <laughs> war. What is it good for? Absolutely <laughs> nothing. You know, but, Edwin uh, Starr, man. It's a good one. Yes. There were a lot of clubs at Kent Nest, and now there are still quite a lot of clubs in Kent. It just seems to, uh, a lot of people stayed. A lot of people got the hell out and never looked back. Uh, Devo, that's the name of the... Ah, yes. Devo. They started in Kent, and Kent had a big, big impression or effect on their music. Uh, that was a whole genre, Devo. Um, I was going to say, and you mentioned the Numbers band earlier. Numbers band. And I know... Yeah, and you know what? Yeah. yeah and I, I don't know exactly when they started playing there, but it could have been before 1970, but I remember driving down to Kent to catch the numbers band. And it must have been 72, like in, in 1972. And not even really thinking about the murders, not even thinking about... I mean, I went to Kent to hear the numbers band at JB's, and I remember really enjoying the music and completely blocking out the campus part, which it's kind of strange. But we do that. I think we do that to survive. You know, we just... yeah. Human yeah, reflex. Yeah. I catch them when they come into Cleveland. I, I've been to like Water Street Tavern. They play there. I haven't. I haven't been to uh, some of the other clubs where where they play in Cuyahoga Falls. But uh, when, when they, whenever they played at uh, Water Street Tavern, or they come into Nighttown. I, I caught them at Nighttown. Every time they're at Nighttown, I live right around the corner from Nighttown. I can walk there. You know, or I can, <laughs> you know, if I have too much to drink, I can crawl home from there. You know. <laughs> but uh, yeah. These guys are amazing. I mean, amazing. They just get better and better and better. And they and they play multiple instruments. And it's almost like it's music, but it's poetry. It really and drama. I mean, a Jack Kidney, Bob. I mean, it's an amazing band. So uh, yeah, as far as music goes, uh, you know, I had I had a lot of blues albums and. I don't know. I, like, I don't have a turntable anymore, so, I, you know, I had like 600 LPs. Of, you know what? I gave it away to this med student, this uh, the daughter of, of where I get my haircut. I was getting my haircut, and she comes in with two albums. She came in with, like, a Traffic and a Jimi Hendrix, and I go, wow, yeah, I, I got those albums. And she says, I love 60s music. And I go, really? I didn't see the turntable and all that stuff. Yeah, she loves sixties music. And you know what? I have six hundred albums, and my wife and I we moved from uh, one one condo into another condo on the first floor, and it was lacking in storage, so I couldn't really keep all the stuff that I had. And I have all these albums; they were in the garage. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to sell these. I don't want to just for some reason. I don't know. Just didn't want to sell them. And I figured, you know, what? I'm going to give it to this girl. And I loaded up my car. That's a lot of records. Hit my, I mean, my suspension was like 
pretty low in the back there. It was like a lot of six big boxes of, of those vinyl records. And I dropped them off and I gave it to her. I couldn't think of a better way to, of a gift to somebody that loved 60s music. And here were all these albums. And these are albums that wow. my buddy's mom, was. she did the advertising for Cotton Club through KYW, I guess, at the time. Anyway, so she calls up Bob and she says, Bob, bring your station wagon uh, down to the studio, uh, to the TV station, because we're switching from uh, long playing records to cassettes. Well, Bob and I would go down there, Lightning Hopkins, uh, Muddy Waters, Taj Mahal. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you, whatever the blues were at the, at the time, all these blues are cream, traffic. You, 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 you know, we had all these albums. Well, those are the albums that, because I didn't really, I didn't really buy too many albums because I had so many already. B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, Burger King, you name it. <laughs> anyway, I gave, so that's what happened to my LPs. And I kind of feel good about it because, you know, I'm, I'm 72 and I figure, you know, what am I going to do with all this shit? You know, exactly. I, I, got a nephew, I got a nephew in New York. Oh, I got you. I could have given them to you. It's too late. It's all good. What's funny is, you know, vinyl is back now, and one of I our, know. yeah, one of our contributors to Tunesmate writes about visiting all the, the local shops, and there's a there's a whole experience around that as well. And I'm so glad you're able to find a home for those that yeah. vinyl because yeah, I mean, somebody uh, needs to appreciate put it. Put it on uh, on the internet and sell them for two dollars or three dollars or five thousand. I got to yeah. deal with these people. They're going to yeah. show up, or they're going to. Exactly. I don't, you know, I just assume. Yeah, right. I think that's why that's great. I kind of look at, at that way with my, even my artwork now. I've got so much artwork. I said, you know, what am I going to do with this stuff? I, I don't have any kids, you know, and, and my nephew's in New York. And I don't know. No, nobody's interested in this stuff anymore, but. Uh, you can auction it off. I had a former uh, college professor, Al Wasco. He's been putting it up on a website and just selling them for like $50 each, something like that. You might be able to go uh, down that path. It's been working out uh, for him. Well, we, could, we could partner on that. And yeah, there you go. In your spare time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've got plenty of that. But, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it just music, sounds like music. music. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, they part of you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, sit around and, uh, you know, light up a joint or, you know, you know bottle of uh, Boone's Farm apple wine and sit there and listen to music. And, you know, I just sit there and go, whoa, yeah, wow. I had a shortwave radio. Not shortwave. I had a, uh, one of those, a 19... 35 uh, Sears Silvertone stand-up uh, radio, one of these old radios that somebody gave me uh, when I was a cat. We used to tune it into uh, shortwave and get high. And, you know, it was like a bunch of artists and I would sit around and we'd, we'd take notes and scribbles and all these all these ideas would come popping into our heads and then the next morning we'd look at it and we'd go, what the fuck was that? <laughs> So the, the inspiration didn't uh, exactly turn out the way that you thought it would. <laughs> wow, man. I, I thought I had the answer uh, to the uh, question of the, yeah. where the universe are, you know, and all this. But anyway. I could have sworn uh, I, that's, wasn't, isn't that a folklore of, of how some of the later Beatles albums came to be? So something there, Ralph, uh, either the Beatles were, had some other process down where they're able to turn that into uh Listening gold? I'm not sure. Maybe there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It's like when you're at the dentist office and they give you this, uh, what is it, sodium pentothal or whatever it is to, you know, put you in a, you know, in a state of mind, and then you, uh, you, you come out of it and you go, 
I was talking to God there. Exactly. I know the answer. I know the meaning to life at this time. There it was. I had it. I had it for a few seconds. It slipped through my hands. I even did a sketch of it, and now it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, Ralph, it was awesome catching up with you. I think, you know, retelling your story of May 4th at Kent State, I think for all of us, we should remember that time. And as you said earlier, there was a lot that led up to it. And there's been a legacy that's been left afterwards. And not only the music, but just the the thought behind what we should do as bystanders of the event and and just remember it for what it means yeah i mean uh that's part of my history and um i got involved with the may 4th task force and there's a lot of young people that came on board that uh, they, they weren't born of course they weren't born back then but uh got involved in it and uh yeah music the music you know country joe came into town a bunch of times and played at the event and uh Vietnam veterans and the music that they uh, shared during the Vietnam War, you know, mm-hmm. what took the music that took them through that era. And, uh, yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate you telling your story. And for anyone that is interested, definitely look up the music of this time period and what was inspired from it. And of course, I know Ralph as an illustrated artist at this point in your career. <laughs> You may not be looking for work, but you definitely should look up Ralph Solanus artwork that's out there and yeah, yeah check it out. Just Google my name and, and it'll take you to you know a lot of my stuff. I have a Facebook page. I have like uh, five thousand friends on it, so I can't take any more people. And fair enough. You know, but, uh, <laughs> just go, yeah, go, Google me. I'm not looking for any any work right now. You know, basically. Yeah, but check right it out there. because I'll it's fun you, stuff. But I'll tell you what I lo- what I love to do, Mark. I, you know, I can't do it any, right now, but mm-hmm. I love going to a blues bar or. Uh, a venue and sketching the band or sketching yeah. the audience. I've That's seen what that. I love to do that. And I love, I bought Katonic there. I get my little, my rollerball pen and, a, and my pad of paper. Yeah, my work. That that's yeah. what I love to do, and um, I guess you maybe you can see that some of my stuff on my oh, Facebook. Yeah. If you can get, I guess you can see my Facebook page as long as uh, it's open. It's not open to the public, but I mean, I guess you can see my work. I don't know. I was just gonna say, you a while ago when we were just kicking off Tunesmate, you did a couple original illustrations for some of my articles, so you can definitely check out on Tunesmate. I've got a couple DJ Chronicle stories that you did some images for, so you can at least get a little a flavor of Ralph on Toonsmate. <laughs> <laughs> the flavor, that's the soup of the day. That's right. All right, Mark. Good talking to you. Yeah, and, same uh, here, you Ralph. Know, I guess I maybe I'll see you in a couple years when it's... Uh, yeah, eventually. Over, huh? <laughs> well, thanks for joining the podcast. <laughs> oh, you take care, buddy. I love you. You take care. Same to you, Ralph. Bye-bye. All right, welcome back from the interview. Ray, that was fascinating just to hear Ralph's account of what happened that day. And I'm really glad that we had that we had the opportunity to talk about music and how it impacted it. And to make a cheesy segue is I recently posted Title Title. And I put it up and you said, wait a minute, Mark, what about Gloria by U2? And I was like, I kind of paused. I was like, what song is that? So I added it. So now there are four Glorias. We've got Gloria by them, featuring Van Morrison, then Gloria by U2, then Gloria by Laura Branigan, and then Gloria by the Lumineers, which was released last year. Ray, 
I have a sneaky suspicion I know which way you voted. Yeah, it's pretty odd. Although I will tell you this. Because, yeah, you, you posted it, and I went to vote, and I'm like, uh, the one I want to vote for isn't here. And I actually considered just picking another one. And I, I don't know the Lumineers song very well, but the uh, them and Van Morrison one, I mean, that, it's a classic. I mean, it, it really is hard to go against that song. But I also, I mean, I actually sing that Laura Branigan song, like, all the time. In fact, I've sang it to my dog, like, three times this week, because... I like so this is the thing right my my dog I can he's like laying around doing nothing and I'll 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 say to my wife I'll say hey watch I can get him to get up and I open the I open the cheese drawer in my refrigerator and the minute I do he gets up and comes over cuz he he like is tuned it's like the pavlog experiment with cheese right it he's attuned to that he can be literally the other side of the house where you don't even think he can hear and I'll I'll pull out cheese to, to eat something, something with cheese or cut some cheese or something. And I'll hear him come trotting in. I'm like, how the hell did you even hear that dog? Right. So, so I, I've said to him a number of times recently, I've got your number. And then I start going, I got the alias you've been living under, you know, and I start going into that song. So, I mean, so to me, that's like a classic too. But in the end, yes, as a YouTube fan, I love their song glory, which I mean, in, in some ways pays some homage to them and Van Morrison. So it's not like, you know, completely devoid of context from that, but it's a, it's a song. It's actually got religious uh, overtones to it. It, It's based in um, Hmm. Gloria in Excelsis Deo. And so it's got, you know, a Latin uh, religious context, but the song is just a beautiful song. So, so yeah, you too is my vote. What about you? Well, I remember you playing that song in the dorm. I remember the cassette. I haven't heard it since then. So (laughs) it totally slipped my memory. So I went back, listened to that. I actually listened to all four. And I have had the hardest time picking because I like all of them for mm-hmm, various mm-hmm. reasons. Especially after hearing the drum riff on U2's Gloria. Mm-hmm. I totally forgot about how powerful that was. It, just, it starts with it. It brings you in. So to me, in the end, I haven't actually voted yet. <laughs> I'm going to vote. But I've been just having trouble. That's okay. But to me, it always goes down to which song is going to get me moving around mm-hmm. the most. And that's Gloria by Laura mm-hmm. Branigan. There's just something about it. I don't know if it's the, I just, I get sucked into that, that keyboard riff. Right. It's got to be that. Because the Lumineers is strong. Yeah. They're all strong. Yeah. I mean, this, this is another hard yeah. one. That's the great thing about these title titles, right? We've talked, we talked about it before on this podcast, right? With Crazy or whatever, you know, sometimes you get like these, these title titles and it is hard to pick yeah we talked about it with hey baby right you know before you know that, right. that it is really hard to pick the you know that you get these great songs that all have the same title and that's one of the beauties of music that's why we do the blog right that's why we do this and, mm-hmm. and the idea that I, I can't blame you for having a hard time picking i mean if it weren't for the fact that i just i'm a youtube fan and i really like that tune um you know if it were even a lesser youtube tune like you know not something i mean there are youtube tunes that that i um, you know, that I'm okay with, but I don't like love baby face. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> you know, some of that stuff from the mid nineties gets a worse rap than it really deserves. But, um, uh, what was the one lemon? We used to say Jack lemon, Jack lemon, you know? <laughs> but you know, I mean, you know, so there's, I mean, yeah, there's ones that, you know, if, if it was up against the great tune and honestly, these are great tunes. When, when you said one that gets me moving, I knew where you were headed. I knew that Laura Brandigan was coming. I just, 
Because there is, there's an energy to that that music. I still haven't voted yet, though. So it's it's really close be, between Laura Brannigan and the Them song with Van mm-hmm. Morrison, just because they have similar qualities, mm-hmm. and it's really tough for me. Well, you know, in some ways, that the Them song is is classic. I mean, when they go into the the Gloria chant, the G. L O R. I mean, it's just you want to sing. I, my dad and I used to sing that song. You know, he played his guitar and we'd sing that song when I was in high school. I mean, that's there, there's no doubt that that song is deserving of this title. And and the Laura Brannigan song, you know, that you said the keyboards and the energy. I mean, that's that's quintessential eighties right there, <laughs> right? I and mean, Laura Brannigan is. I, it was uh, I was tweeting about her a number of weeks ago and. Because I, I come back to Laura Brand again, time and time again, and she's, you know, she's somebody. She died untimely, you know, mm-hmm. what, about 15 years ago now of a brain aneurysm. But she had such a, a powerful voice, and there are songs that you, you know, from other artists that you didn't know that she did. Right. Probably my, my favorite one is, the power of love. That you know, people know the the Celine Dion version from the 1990s. But she had one that hit the top 40 in 1988 that I just love. And the other one, I, another one is, I actually, this is one that I actually uh, uh, shares song. I found someone, remember her sort of comeback hit in 1987, 88. Mm-hmm. And Laura Brannigan did a version of that. Now, that one, I actually, I think I'd like the share version better. But Brannigan did these, these great songs that, you know, if you go back and you look at her albums and there are these songs, you're like, oh, my God. I knew that, you know, and she was working with the same writers, uh, Desmond Child, Diane Warren, you name it, right there from the 80s. And uh, she was singing their songs, and her voice is just so damn good. And so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with picking Laura Brannigan. Well, I will tell you this is, yes, it's interesting how you were just talking about Laura Brannigan and bringing it back to our topic today is one of the songs we talked about earlier was Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. But there was an '80s artist that did a remake of it that I love, and I if I had to do a cover, cover it would be close, and I know it would be blasphemous to some folks. But Robert Palmer did a great version of that's what's going on, and then he mixed it in. It was like a mashup into Mercy, Mercy Me. Yeah, it was uh, 91, 90, 91, that song. Yep, and that was unbelievable. And it's interesting how. He picked two songs that worked really well together, and that was well before a mashup. Yeah, yeah, that I, concept. I, rem- I remember that song. That was a that was a great combo of songs. It, it was 1991. He did that, and uh, the album came out. I think I think that's from the album that came out late '90, and then the song. And you're right, and and that's 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 a very good point. When you mentioned uh, before we went into the interview, and you mentioned Marvin Gaye and what's going on, that that really sort of struck me too about. That that's a song that lots of folks have remade over the years. Um, Cindy Lauper has a version of it uh, that she did in the 1980s as well. It's that's one of those songs that, as you said, you could do a cover cover. You could you could look at various folks and their takes on it, and it, it's one that stands the test of time in terms of its its significance. It, and it was you know it involved Kent State and what was going on what's going on at that time, but it carries over right. So then. Palmer's version puts it with Mercy, Mercy Me, and there's this sort of environmental message in there. And folks remake that to, to say, to look at various other aspects, you know, what's going on in the world from this and this. And that song is a song that's able to carry through and, and play in different contexts because of that. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how it has transcended. And I think, as you said earlier, 
we talked about this on our, our Yacht Rock episode, how certain, I guess you would call them demographics, certain groups pinpoint specific times in their lives and look back at it. And you, know, you had Buddy Holly and you've got, you know, this, this Kent State event. And then there's, there's probably other events. I mean, I'm thinking about the time right now and there's going to be a time period in the future. We're going to look back and say, wow, what was the music that came out then? Yeah. And remember that. And we had to go through that. So yeah. I think, like you said, that's what tunes mate does is we try to reflect back. We try to bring things up and try to get you connected to music. You haven't thought about. There's been a lot of stuff on here recently. I mean, I, you just posted Debbie Gibson's electric youth. Oh my gosh. I totally forgot about that song. I clicked onto her website and some fan put together like 30 years ago of electric youth with people holding up their albums. And yeah. I had no idea that song had that big of an impact. I mean, that was at the end of her career, but no, it, it went to a number of no, 11. No, no, it wasn't at the end of her career. Um, it seemed like it in my well, mind. Well, so, okay. <laughs> You're talking to a Debbie Gibson fan here, right? It was her second <laughs> album. And her first album had the five top five hits, including her first number one, Foolish Beat. Out of the blue, man. And then, yeah, out of the blue started it all in 1987. And then this was her second album. And I mean, she did like fade after that, but she had three top 20 hits off of that album, including her biggest hit, uh, Lost in Your Eyes, which spent three weeks at number one. And then this came along and it only peaked at 11. I mean, it's one that a lot of folks might have thought went higher. It was the title track of the album, the second released. And then no more rhyme uh, later on that summer of 89 uh, hit, hit i think number 17 if i remember right of it hit the top 20 and then in 1990 she put out an album and anything is possible anything is possible was the top 40 hit off of that and that was her last top 40 hit so and then she had another she had that album was it a few years later oh, yeah. and losing myself was the first single and it was sort of this different feel for her and then from there, she kind of, you know, she moved into doing Broadway and um, she's had a whole, I mean, she's had a, a significant career since then. But even in terms of her pop music career, yeah, this was after her height. I, I mean, it was a, sort of the, the first single after her height. I'd say her height was Lost in Your Eyes. And then this was the next single. So it was the, uh, she had reached the peak of her, her popularity um, in terms of pop music, and this was the first song on the the sort of downslope. But I wouldn't say it was the end of end of her career, or even the end of her her pop music significance. And but you know, you mentioned that um, this, this makes us feel old. Debbie Gibson is going to turn fifty in August. I like to joke. Yeah, sorry, I had to. I couldn't help that, but I I had to to step in there to defend Debbie Gibson. Well, you know, I'm going to defend Tiffany then because she, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I, I never, I mean, I was a Debbie Gibson fan, but I never disliked Tiffany. So um, this was the, you look at the same time period because, you know, they, they both came out in summer to fall of 87. Debbie had more hits. Tiffany had those three top 10 hits off her first album. But then her second album came out right around the same time as mm -hmm. Debbie Gibson's second album. And th that had all this time on it. Great song. Which, uh, yeah, oh, that's actually my favorite Tiffany song. And it, it didn't, it, I mean, it hit top 10, I think it went to six, but, you know, didn't have the success of the two number ones from her first album. But, and that's another one. I, I can't remember if I did that year, years ago when I first started Title Title. You did? I, I can't remember if I actually did it or not, so. but um, I think Tiffany and Sting share the same birthday, like 20 years apart. 
but they all they both have all this time and that would be an interesting title title I could have sworn that was up there, but I'll have to look into it. It probably was. I probably have done it like eight or nine years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, probably. Well, thanks for tuning in this episode to Tunes Mate. We hope you enjoyed our banter. Make sure <laughs> make sure to follow us. We've got you need to subscribe to our, our podcast. We're gonna keep putting out some episodes. We're gonna bring Jose back. We've got plenty to talk about. So subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter. You name it, we're out there, and we thank you for your support, and we're definitely going to be having some more coming up in the future. So, this is Mark, and we will see you next time.